I mean, there's just, you thought you were here and now you're here. There are no captions on the movie. There are no Laura Man. Thirds or anything that tells you now you're in Germany, 1946. Now you're here. Now you're there. All that's off. You you never know what's what. I never tell you explicitly with words on the screen where you right. are. Yeah. You know where you are. Right. And even if it takes you a second to catch up to it, good. That blurred edge is exactly what I want because you can be in Nazi Germany or you could be Trayvon or you could be mm-hmm. you could be in India, you know, stepping into a sore. The right. bottom line is we're all experiencing this thing that is uniform across all cultures and times. Right. Someone has to be better than someone else. And the way that looks and how it manifests and how it behaves has all kinds of names that are real. Racism, sexism, all those things. But at the base of it, it's this really insidious idea that we as human beings must have hierarchy. Yeah. Very few cultures that don't. And so so if you get to that root, that's underneath all the isms. That's something to solve for. If we can start to solve for that, then maybe the other ones start to have room to dissipate, change, be reshaped. That's the quote, what I finally got from the book on the third reading. Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman is a podcast on directing for anybody that's quite simply ever watched anything. Visit PeteChapman.com to get your official podcast merch. Hoodies, hats, jackets, mugs, and other swag. And learn more about your host. All right, folks. Happy New Year, first of all. Uh, I hope everybody has been having an amazing holiday season. We are dropping a special episode. As you know, we concluded uh, season four earlier in, what, December? And I had an opportunity to chat over the holiday break with none other than the writer, producer, director, Ava DuVernay. And I had a chance to see her film, Origin which is an amazing film that I think everybody should check out as soon as you can. It follows Isabel Wilkerson as she constructs the best-selling book, Cast, and also begins to take a look at how we as mankind have gotten to this place where we are with all the isms and and whatnot that permeate the, the world. I know that sounds like a big, kind of heavy, unwieldy topic, but In this film, Ava's found a way to really take these big ideas and anchor them to uh, a hero's journey while meshing history, drama, surreality, and so many things in in what I think is her best work to date. So I had a chance to chat with her while I'm here on vacation, too. So I hope you enjoy the special episode with writer, producer, director, Ava DuVernay. Roll sound. Speed. The interview. Take one. So this is a special episode. So I we'll we'll just dive right into it. Um, okay. And and there's 
so many places to begin. I will say, and we will get to origin specifically. I, I think the film is beautiful. I watched it twice. Yeah. The first time to, it's kind of like when you, when you direct, like you get a script and you just kind of want to read it and let it be. And then when it's time to like really absorb it, you start rewatching or rereading. And there are a lot of things, which I will talk about when we get to the film uh, a bit more that I, that I think are masterful about it. I think that my, you know, when I work on things, I try and come up with like one word that is a guiding principle of sorts. And my description of the film and of your filmmaking, I think would be control. Because I, I think it's I think it's sure footed, very deliberate and very clear while dealing with something that's very. Almost nebulous, an idea is kind of nebulous, right? Uh, and to and to go down the road of making a film about an idea requires that kind of control. So we'll come back to that. OK. But yeah, so, you know, look, I ask everybody, what was like the first story that kind of connected to you? and made you say and, or see the power of storytelling? The power of storytelling. Wow, that's a big one. You know, I just remember loving films really early on. And my sister Gina loves books. She's an actual librarian. And my sister Tara like, loves experiences. And so she's the, the head of, of a museum, the Equal Justice Initiative Museum, the National Lynch Memorial down in Montgomery. And I just always love movies. <laughs> And so I remember seeing the first film that I can remember seeing at the movie theater was Grease. Mm. Um, and the first film that really moved me and made me say, I love movies was West Side Story on television. And, and it's interesting that those are both musicals, but you know, as a, as a young person, the dancing, the singing, all of that just kind of swept me up in the magic of it all. Mm. I remember in high school, and still just as a fan of it, never thinking that I would ever make any. I remember in high school going to see Legends of the Fall with a boyfriend. And I remember after I was talking about the film so much, he's like, okay. <laughs> he liked the movie. What were you talking like, about? Were, were, you, the, were you commenting? The, the span of time. It was really mm -hmm. the way it was put together in chapters and that you saw the maturation of the family. And for whatever reason, I remember thinking, that was a huge deal for me to, to talk mm -hmm. about seeing this, this, this life that felt real and rooted and complex and all the things. I'm sure, you know. So I, re I remember that conversation went to eat afterward and, and he was annoyed that I was talking about the movie so much. And then I remember in college going to see Mo Better Blues, my freshman mm -hmm. year of college, and being like, oh, my God, I've never seen anything this sexy, black, exciting. Mm -hmm. Of course I'd seen other Spike Lee films. Of course I'd seen other, other films with black people, but there was something about that that I just felt was like extraordinary to me at that time at 18 years old. And so those are some key movie moments and that all right. affect me in their storytelling in different ways. Right. And so at, at any point, like, so Mo Better is what, 90, gosh, 93? No, what? I'm... I think it had to be closer to like 90, 91. 90. So I know I'd seen Do the Right Thing, but I don't know why Mo Better. Because I was in college. I was feeling mm. cute. I was in Westwood. I went to UCLA, going out with friends, like feeling really grown up mm -hmm. and seeing a grown up movie. So Now, now I, I, I will preface that. I do know the answer to some of the questions I ask, but I have to ask them. So. Of course. Okay. <laughs> so what, what was it like growing up where you grew up? 
which is where? I grew up in Compton, Long Beach, Linwood, Tri-City area. And what was it like? It was a wonderful childhood. You know, I loved, I loved and still love home. And it, uh, but yeah, very, very, very black. And also um, in my elementary year, elementary school years, the school that I went to, which was a a Catholic school, had uh, many Filipino uh, students. And Mm -hmm. so it was kind of like a black Filipino, Latino uh, vibe. My street was all black, uh, but friends were, we'd put our hands out and we'd all be really the same color brown. It was a, it was a beautiful growing up. Kind of like a Benetton ad a little bit. Well, no, I think Benetton ad has some white folk in it. Um, <laughs> I, I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't go to school with any, any, any white students until I was in high school. So it was a, a very predominantly of color early childhood. Were your parents uh, big on movies? No, my aunt Denise was big on movies. So I had an aunt Denise who was a a nurse. Uh, She worked at night so she could enjoy life during the day, plays, museums. She's a big book reader and she loved movies. Mm -hmm. And so she really gave me a love of movies on the bus going from Compton to the Cerritos Mall or the Lakewood Mall to see movies. About a 45 minute to an hour bus ride once a week. Um, if it was a time when she had a car, we'd be on fumes trying to get there. But yeah, I watched a lot of movies with her. And she would do this thing where she'd find the movie starting at the same time. I'd go into one and she'd go into another because she liked to see things that I couldn't see when I was younger. And so uh, we'd meet out at the same time or she'd be, make sure I, she was out before me or whatever the thing was. So it was a ritual. That's, that's in the days when movies were not three hours long. And you could reliably exit around the same time. Around the same time. Facts. Facts. Much different than now. And also, you would let your kid go into a movie theater by themselves. I mean, I did a whole bunch of stuff. I was a latchkey kid, so me and my two mm-hmm. sisters would walk in the door. I look back now, and it's like, was I mine? Yeah. You walk home from school, you open the door, you clean up, you watch TV, you do yep. your homework. My mom got home. What's yeah, wrong with I- it? That's just... Was the way it was. Same now here. I think of putting a nine-year-old walking home and walking in the door. It's just yeah, not done. no, it's wild. I mean, I that was Did I had a key around my neck. I had a key around yeah. my neck. Big um, Cold little the little like the like kind of metal balls that you kind of clicked in. I had yeah. the key around there. That was that was third grade. That's what third I'm saying. Grade. That made us tough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But what, can you imagine? At your third grader, when you're when your your baby's in the third grade, no. Can you imagine? <laughs> no, tenth uh, grade, no. <laughs> you know, nah. I mean, that's extreme, but no, nah, it's a it's a different time. So what what when you went to UCLA, what were you focused on? What were you thinking you were going to pursue? Yeah, I was interested in journalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was an English and African American studies major, and I thought that I I wanted to produce the news. So not be on air, but kind of, I like the idea of being able to decide what the news was. Really, mm-hmm. that's what it was. And to be out in the field doing stories and traveling the world. And so that's what I thought I would do. So in college, I got this very prestigious internship with CBS News, the evening news, which was a big deal. And, and I was uh, one of the interns on the O.J. Simpson trial. And after that trial or after my internship, the trial was still going when it was over, I uh, decided that news wasn't for me. 
Um, and then it was just really how so many people fall into what they do. What job could you get? Right. And it's so, so a part of how people end up living their lives is what job was available at the time that you were looking for a job. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And how bad did you need it? And how bad did you need it? I was <laughs> graduating from high school, from college, and I had the degrees, and I was still interested in news, but someone had told me about publicity, that it was a way of shaping the news, that you right. were pitching stories and that you were able to kind of craft what these segments were. So I applied for a lot of different publicity positions, all kinds, corporate, sports, you know, municipal, and I got a job at a small studio as an assistant. And the rest is <laughs> The rest is uh, phase one of your professional if, career. If I would have got that municipal job, I would have been doing PR for the gas company or something. But I didn't. I got the job for the, for the studio. So here we are. So do you remember, this is an interesting question, but I was having a convo last night with a buddy of mine that's on vacation with us. And we were talking about uh, NYU had career services, right? And so when you would, when you would, when you were about to graduate and get a job, like they would do like these interviews and they'd record it and they'd say, oh, you know what? You shouldn't be leaning in. That's like the wrong body language to do. And like, you know, make sure you address everybody in the room because you don't know who holds the power because they may not necessarily be revealing it. Right. Right. Um, How do you... Do you remember what your interview was like and like what you did well and what you might have oh. done better at? Yeah, there were no NYU services or the like. <laughs> Those are really good tips. No, I didn't have any of that. I remember, I remember, no, just going in and doing my best. I remember making a resume for the first time and really studying that really hard with with books. And, and you know, I remember buying my first little suit. But and reading my mother, actually, my mother worked in human resources at Kaiser. So she gave me tips, mm-hmm. but certainly no preparation for interviewing for a, a studio. And right. now what I know about what people are looking for, I don't even know how I got that job, you know, mm-hmm. except someone willing to work for low pay and long hours who seemed enthusiastic, probably. But yeah, no. And now, you know, I tell people now so often about job interviews now that I have a have a, a team at Array and that I hire so many people on my crews. I tell them what I wish I knew at that time, which was mm. the person that you're talking to needs you so badly. They wake up in the morning knowing that they have interviews, hoping that this person that, that today they will meet the answer right. to their need. So right. don't go in afraid, go in, not over overconfident, but I could be the answer for you is the vibe. Because yeah. being on the other side so often right now, I, I know how many times it's like, please just let this person be halfway decent. You know, <laughs> please let them know something. Like, please right. let them at least have a spark in their eyes or something I feel like I can work with. Mm-hmm. And that's a thought in my head so often. And I realize, wow, that's everyone that's interviewing has a neat week. Yeah. I and this is tangential, but I I do this in my you know the the TV journeyman hustle where you're just trying to get in on all these different things. I'm like I make it concretely clear by saying like I would love to direct this episode of your show, and I think about that and I'm like I bet in 15 interviews over a week they're not hearing it. They're, they're not, not hearing that. It. They're not no. hearing it. 
And maybe I shouldn't be putting that out, but. <laughs> but no, I mean, I, I just think the declaration of interest, of enthusiasm, of energy, yeah. of commitment, just that declaration. I know in all the work with Queen Sugar, like, you know, yeah, there were some women I just plucked out of. They got a call and they're like, oh, what's going on? There wasn't right. an interview process because I was curating it differently. But in all the other shows that we've crewed up, you know, we've made eight, eight different series in the last four years, four or five years, you know. A leaning in, a mm-hmm. I'm cool, you know, not I could take it or leave it, like someone who you want to hold hands with. Yeah. And that's what you're giving. And and also you direct everything. So I don't even know why you even still on the phone with anybody. You should just hey. say, look at my CV and call me. Hey, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I we'll <laughs> see. <laughs> I don't even know what to do with that. I I I I I fumbled. I called you a few but... times, Pete. You're not even available. I don't know why you're playing humble. You're packed. Yeah. You are stacked. You are booked back to back. It's like you and yeah. Paris Barkley. I just, you know, at some point you just stop calling because you're not, you know, you're not going to get them. Ah, oh, come on. Come I'm on. I'm going to keep trying, though. <laughs> I'm gonna keep trying. I'm going to keep trying. We, it's come, it's come close. Well, you know, the thing, and, and I'll come, we'll come back, but like what I've noticed as of late is that I'm not, I'm not or what, not what I've noticed, what I'm doing as of late is not just packing it in. Like you know, in the first the first few years, you're like, I don't know if they're gonna call. You know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah, like yeah. you're like boom, 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 boom. And then inevitably, as you know, I got into the fifth, sixth year of doing this, it would be like the dope shit that comes up like three weeks out. You know what I mean? And like right, you, and right. you and you have to leave that room because you'll 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 pad it with with things that are cool, but then like you'll you have a couple things you're like, damn. I, w- I, I wish I would have been available for that, you know? And you're not um, the kind of person that breaks relationships. I mean, I've had episodic directors where a dope thing comes or whatever they think it is. And they, you know, you there's nothing worse than the pull out two weeks or the week before. It's just yeah. the height of unprofessionalism. And you've burned a relationship with not just with a lot of people when that happens. So yeah. you're right. Even a little bit more room to be choosy. Yeah. 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 So... So just getting back to the journey, because I want to get into the, the film and TV talk too. So small studio, you're doing publicity. Are you finding that telling the story of these films? And I'm going to assume, that, was it for films or for films. filmmakers? Films, Fil- right? Film, films and and back then, home videos. Okay. Yeah. So like, did you find enjoyment in crafting the narrative for you know, the people who would come into contact with, with these materials and hopefully go see the film? I loved it. Yeah. I loved publicity. I loved it so much I still do. I could still be doing it if I didn't fall in love with film. Publicity is like my boyfriend, but film is my husband. <laughs> you know, I, I, I talk to a lot of friends and filmmakers about marketing and publicity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, can't tell you how many, I mean, it's it's dozens a year of, friends who are going into their PR marketing meeting for their project. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, give me 10 things to say to sound smart. Okay. Ask about this, 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 this. Right. And also working on my own is mm-hmm. a big part of the filmmaking process for me, you know, to, you know, craft that poster, get in there with the trailer, get in there with the field campaign, the promotions, the ad buys, all of that stuff is, so that I've done professionally. I had an agency that did it for a while for the various studios I've worked for and right. for directing for. 
And so, you know, like the relationship with Netflix did three different things with them was one of very much, they know this is what I'm, I'm going to do. And so there was never a resistance to it. It was kind of like, yeah, just let, let her in and let's do it together. And so, you know, I enjoy when it's that kind of, collaboration around it because for me that's still a part of the filmmaking mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. now it is i mean it's it's got to start even earlier these days because you can seed the word on 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 the film or the show or whatever yeah. years before it comes out yeah yeah absolutely and you can yeah and you can make sure that the representation the way the film is represented to the public is in the likeness of what you've made you know so often you mm-hmm. see a trailer and you're like that movie and that trailer didn't match you know, mm-hmm. or, you know, there's a poster that just doesn't capture it. I think so much with things that are about people in the niches, whether it's women or or black folk or brown folk or queer folk or whatever it is, you know, there's not a fluency in that right. within studios. And so if it is your film, you need to be able to kind of lean in and define right. what it is and determine some of that, be self-determined right. in that. So. Because it's like, it's the home court advantage. All that PR is should be, like, if you could invite them to your home to experience what this film should be, like, you can curate it. And if it doesn't mesh with what's going on in the home, it's like, what is this? Yeah, exactly. So I think, yeah, it's a big part of it. And it's something that I enjoy then doing for other people and enjoy still now. And also just, I'm a geek. I'll watch other people's campaigns and, you know, uh, my friend Coleman Domingo, I, we had a nice long conversation right before he was starting his double campaign for Reston and Color Purple. Mm-hmm. And he was just like, I got two at the same time. How am I, you know, just fun conversations about, you know, I, I called a friend once who was promoting a film and was like, when you're on the couch, you have to tell this story and it needs to be this long. You can't go on and tell all, eat your couch yeah. time. With this long ass story, okay? Right. You gotta get it out. You know, you right. need to get these three points across. Even if they don't ask you, you mm-hmm. need to make sure that you don't get off of that couch until you say these three things. Even if you're right. screaming at the end as the right, music, right, right. you gotta do it. So right. that's 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 the fun stuff. It's such a uh, an art to it. So I, I I admire it. For anybody who hasn't watched the directors on directors interview with you and Michael Mann, that was that was great. Um, watching that. So folks should be familiar with your uh, time working on Collateral and kind of recognizing that this film thing might be something that you want to do. Had that desire been kind of bubbling beneath the surface before you kind of made that? Or it was literally like, a. it was, I feel this now and I'm going to embark on it. Uh, In my memory, it was, I feel it now. It was the first time that I can remember thinking, I can do that. You know, uh-huh. I can I can do what he's doing. Um, I had been on many sets as a publicist. So I'd been around sets. Um, and I'd seen, I won't say all kinds of directors because predominantly white men directing, but I'd, I'd been on sets and I, you know, publicists are not treated well on sets because <laughs> we're annoying. We're trying to take people from the AD and the director away from the mm. main acts to do interviews or there's, some strange journalist with us that nobody wants to deal with or whatever it right. is. And so, but, you know, had, had used those on-set moments as opportunities to observe 
just because I always loved film and was fascinated by it, but there was something about being on that set of collateral that it sparked something different. I think it might've been the cameras because it was very early days of digital cameras. Right. And, and it was just, everything was moving faster and differently. And, and there was a lot of tension around the digital cameras because there, it wasn't something, it wasn't ease of use that everyone knew how to do it. Although once it got right. up and running, it was like, this is fantastic. And so there was something there that created a little bit of a sizzle. And then, you know, Michael's intense and the cast was <laughs> like Tom yeah. Cruise and Javier Bardem and Mark Ruffalo and Jada and Jamie. It's like, okay, whoa. Yeah. No one knew Javier at the time and Mark Ruffalo wasn't. But for right. me, Jamie Fox and Jada Pinkett and, and Tom Cruise was a big deal. So that, yeah. that, 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 and they were shooting in areas that I was from. East LA, South Central, Inglewood, mm-hmm. like, you know, black parts of town of LA. So all that together created some kind of magic for me. And I started to think about, uh, start to think about it, started to take a few classes at UCLA Extension, reading mm-hmm. books, and, and decided to make my first short. What was the gap in time from that moment on set to, to that short being in production? I don't know. That's a good question. I gotta go look that up. Not, mm-hmm. not not sure. I'm going to look that up. Not long. I think like within a year. A year. Within a year. Yeah. Yeah, maybe a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because that first one, the first time you do it, it, like the, the, what you don't know can almost be a benefit, right? Like to just keep going in and pursuing it. And, you know, I'm sure you didn't have that much of a budget, but you're like, huh. we can do it. Um, we can do it. We can do it. Yeah. This can't be that hard. Exactly. Exactly. Can you know, they, figure this maybe, out? maybe a weekend, you know? Yeah. So after that short, what was the life of that short? Like, was it, did you run a festival circuit? Yeah. Thank you. What a nice question to think back on these times. I remember, and I'll say to this, and I just thinking about it makes me emotional. That a lot of beautiful things happened mm-hmm. to me film wise. Um, a lot of good news over the years of, different things that people would see as successful moments. Mm. But there's not one that I've experienced that felt as transformative, as wondrous, I'll use wondrous and magical, Mm. as when I got the acceptance to the Palm Springs Short Film Festival in an envelope that said Palm Springs Short Film Festival with one sheet of paper inside that could have been a rejection or not, the only one that I applied to. Mm. And it said, no, there were two. I applied to Sundance and I applied to Palm Springs. And I got Palm Springs. Didn't know that you can't play Sundance if you play Palm Springs. Had no, no, had no clue. <laughs> That's, that's it, fine print. That's a fine print. <laughs> but opened it up and literally it is as if angels sang. Mm-hmm. I could hear bells and they were like sparkly things. In yeah. my memory, I was purely overwhelmed with happiness and pride that something that I'd made had been appreciated by someone else. And that yeah. I was going to get to see my movie on a big screen. Yeah. And it doesn't matter. Can jury, 
Academy Award nomination. Uh, beautiful things have happened that have been wonderful and I've been happy about, but not that I am dizzy with joy yeah. as the Palm Springs Short Film Festival, which was a very nice experience when I actually- Because it was, it was unexpected and it was, it was needed. You needed that. Like, there's a point, right? Where like, yeah. you know, I mean, I'm sure you would have kept going and done another thing and another thing and another thing, but like- I don't know if I would have. You, know, you don't know if you would have? I, I, I'm not sure. I, I, I you know, I, I know a lot of people who kind of stop because they don't have mm. that external encouragement. I would yeah. like to think it would keep going. I'm that kind of person, but this was such an anomaly. I was a publicist. I had a job, like yeah. not a job, a business. Right. You know, a full right. own Papa Duvernay agency. My clients were actual studios. Like I right. had a, a job, a career that was doing very well. I don't know if I had gotten a bunch of rejections, hmm. if I would have kept going. I'm not sure. And that's actually, uh, yeah, that was, in, that was a bit presumptuous of me. And it made me think of uh, actually this book. I think it was called The First Time I Got Paid for It, a bunch of uh, writers talking about that. Yeah. Talking about the first thing they saw. And I feel like William Goldman's chapter was he had been trying and trying and trying and trying to sell things. And he finally got like a short story published or whatever. But he said, like, I knew after that one that I was going to quit. Wait, like, if quit. It, like if he didn't sell that thing, he was ah. like, I'm done. I'm done with writing. Yeah. And I'm like, damn, like the the course of this shit can <laughs> You know, can it hangs it on can, a whim sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Little, and you also just never know what conversation that you're having with people. How things, so many moments I think of. I mean, I had the moment last night. I got an email because I'm having a tough time with some stuff with my movie right now. And I got an email that was so like it made me weep. Hmm. The time that you take with people just to encourage or to ask the extra question or to say. You know, I mean, it's just treating each other well in this tough business, being mm -hmm. interested in each other, uh, mm -hmm. listening a little bit. I can think of many, 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 many times in my career that that has helped me over a hump. And so it may yeah. not be Palm Springs Film Festival for for you, but but sometimes it's it's the kind word for someone that just makes you say, "I can keep, I can keep going." Mm -hmm. I can keep it. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know. As we're talking, I feel like I'm going to I'm going to do a little a little pivot from how I would normally do this interview, because I, I, I kind of want people to kind of know the full journey. But I also feel like they can go figure that out. And yeah, and there's, there's a lot they, of my full journey they, out. there. Yeah, there's, and there's yeah. just stuff that I want to talk about. And I keep okay. clipping. I keep clipping myself because I'm like, I want to go and bring it back here. But go with your instincts. Yeah, let's go with the instincts. So I what what about your journey has made you want to give back so much and i and i ask that because you know a thing that was that was kind of pivotal for me was that 2015 south by keynote that you gave right oh. and you talked about the desperation coat that people have on and it was funny because like you know at that point i have been like you know the people who listen to this shit know what i know what i've done it's you know Sundance in 01 and then raising money for two feature films and then winning Tribeca and doing all stuff and like watching like all my kind of contemporaries and folks after me kind of like, you know, and you're at this point where you're like, I recognize that I was kind of 
not kind of, I was bitter, but it was, I was pushing it down here. And I was like, you know, that desperation coat for me was like, cause I, ne- I, ne- I never felt like I gave that off, but I was like, I, there's a bitter coat too. Mm, like same, you can, huh? you can couch it in all the self-deprecation you, you want, but you really not couching it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I found that to be, and so, and, and so like between that and like Queen Sugar and, and building out, you know, uh, systems to find diverse crew, like what is it about your journey that's made you so committed to that part of your, of what you do? That's interesting. I, I remember early on feeling alone. Mm. And having some tough times with having reached out to people and it not being well received, you know, like you don't want to get the no, you don't want to. And seeing things like groups of filmmakers that seemed like they were having so much fun together, like Mm -hmm. Spielberg and Coppola and Scorsese, and they hung out, you know, in De Palma, and they all were, you know, sharing films and doing that. And I, and I didn't go to film school, so I didn't ever have that. You know, mm-hmm. I, I never had any, I, I, I was, it was learning on the run. So I didn't have friends in film school. I, I didn't get to go to friends screenings or have those kinds of conversations. So a, a lot of it was very selfish. You know, it's like, I, mm-hmm. I, I want to create community around this. I want to have friends who do it, you know? So, you know, and the idea of, of, even early on of creating Array, which was a firm. I remember at Sundance, you know, I w- I'd gone there for many years as a publicist. So I knew what it was. I wasn't enamored with it. I mean, it's extraordinary gathering, but I wasn't, by the time I had a film there, I had been there seven times working as a publicist. Mm-hmm. So, right. you know, I remember when I Will Follow didn't get in and I was there representing the film because I still, I worked all the way up to the middle of nowhere. I, I was a publicist for other people. I remember saying, well, you know what? Let's create, let's still do something. I, I'm I'm making films now and trying to do this on the side. Let's mm-hmm. create. So I did a series of three nights of conversations where they're all the black film, this is pre-Black House, pre, pre all of that. There's like 10 black people here. Why don't we all have dinner? Yeah. And so we did that on a series of three nights with different combinations of people. I could only afford like 10 to 12 people. We recorded it. And, you know, it was people like Tam Bayo Benson and like, you know, like Lisa Cortez and like just whoever mm-hmm. was there getting together, having a conversation just about the future of black film. Right. I'm not doing it out of any benevolence. I'm doing like, oh, let's get filmmakers together. Like, let's have a conversation. Let's have relationships and friendships. And so that was so much about what that was about, what Array has been about. You know, that's why I have an open campus with a movie theater, screening room, mm-hmm. everything's free. You know, it's just like, there shouldn't be barriers to that kind of sharing. And, and so it really came out of not feeling that acutely, that there was like right. not a place like that that I fit into. And so the quest to kind of try to create that. You know, I worked on Scandal. It was the, the only episode I did before I episode of television I did before I created Queen Sugar. So the, the my first two episodes of television were Scandal and Queen Sugar. And mm. I remember feeling like I, I need to be around more people like me. Shonda had given me the opportunity to direct on her show, but 
she's a, she was a writer and showrunner. I'm a, a writer-director. And so I really became interested in, well, what does that look like, writer-directors? And could I put together a group of women who are writers-directors, which is a lot of what Queen Sugar was. People who right. come from the indie space, right? It's a different trajectory than some others. And that was what that whole Queen Sugar crew was at the beginning. And so it became like a tribe of people who did a certain kind of thing. Anyway, long answer. That's why. <laughs> what was it like doing that first episode of TV, having come from, you know, at that point you had done two, you're two, you had done two features, right? At, by 2013, yeah. I think that was. Not to mention a documentary like that. It, it's such a different, you know, medium doing TV. Like, what was that like for you? It was terrifying and I cried. <clears throat> it was the first time I'd ever cried on set. I, I had the presence of mind to walk away. There were a couple of folk I ran into that were not kind on, 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 they were, it was a beautiful show. Crew members? Yeah. Yeah. Crew members. It was a beautiful show run by Shonda, a man named Tom Verica, who, you know, yeah. was just so great. incredible to me, such a great person, but he couldn't be there every minute, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's the kinds of things that some of the guys do when they can to a young new filmmaker and the kinds of things that they say. And I was so unprepared for it because I had created my own little world up to that point, self-taught <laughs> of, I'd made two independent films for literally under $250,000. I'd made a, a documentary. I traveled the festival circuit. I was releasing my own films. I was feeling very, and by the time I got Scandal, I had won Sundance as right. best director. So I'm thinking, okay, you know. It would be open arms, right? That would be open arms or they were, you know, them respect. But, I, you know, I was I was dealing in a completely different world than the real world. You know, mm -hmm. the real world of dealing with, you know, folks who have a, a polish, I guess, that I didn't have. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, there were there. So I remember stepping away and just feeling so low that day and finishing it up and, uh, and being very proud of that work. I love that episode. But that was really something that fueled me with Queen Sugar is, is you know, and, and, I, and it, there's nothing that she could even have done because I didn't even tell anybody. Right. But as I created Queen Sugar, not tolerated. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not going to happen that any woman that steps foot on that set feels like anyone is not there to serve her vision. That's what everybody's there for. Right. So very clearly not telling her no. Well, now we might not do that crazy idea. Right. <laughs> she's got to get to it. You know what I mean? On her, right. she's, gotta, I don't want anybody crying. You know, I don't want anyone feeling that low on that set that they are right. feeling demoralized. And that everyone, every grip, every, everyone knows. And it became a thing. Queen Sugar was the mm -hmm. show with the two women directors and you better treat them right. And I, didn't, right. I never, I, and, and making sure that the women knew that they had an open door to me or Paul Garns or Cheryl mm -hmm. Miller who were running the show to be able to say, well, this happened, which very right. rarely did because people were there knowing what we were all there to do. And so, right. you know, one informed the other. And so it was valuable. It's just a lesson of that, that hard thing you go through, you know, is there for you. You right. know, it's not, it's not something bad happening to you. It's something happening for you. Find right. what it is and make it work. Right, right. And I know, gosh, I probably know 80% of the directors that have come through Queen Sugar. And it, it was such an incredible 
jumping off point, you know, to get the get the mech the mechanics of TV in your blood, stories that are, you know, not being told, environment that fosters, you know, collaboration. Like you really do need that. And it's great it. to have that before you go out into the world and, you know, maybe you won't be guaranteed it everywhere else you go. But to have right. that, you know, as a, have a baseline, little bit of a Christian. Yeah. 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 You know, I jumped straight from my own indie films where I was shooting with one camera mm-hmm. into scandal with cranes and two cams and like, wait, what? What what's I mean, I had a little I didn't I had like two days with the jib on middle of nowhere. I remember the jib, I was <laughs> like, it's moving. Oh my gosh, it goes up and right. down. Like right. literally now I'm on scandal, I'm like shooting at full-on airports with crowd control and da da da. And it's just like, wait, 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 wait. Let me get my bearings and like a formidable cast and like a hit mm-hmm. show. And so, you know, the idea of I would even say on Sugar, you know, I, when I talked to women before, I was just like, they're going from indie. They, I, I knew exactly what most of them were coming from. We made a right. film with what we could. You know, right. You know, when I remember we'd be in the prep meetings, I'm like, okay, you have three crane days. People's eyes would get like, I got three crane days. <laughs> You know, or there's a car shot. So, you know, we're going to have to use techno crane. What? I get to play right. with, like, just ain't play with the toys. Get, right. you know, get the, you know, multiple costume changes in a day. An actual costume designer. You made indies. You yeah. know, an actual department heads who yeah. know their job. Like, you're not opening a bag of Doritos and putting it on the, like, real crafty with a real truck. Right. Like, right. actual right. medic, not a box of Band-Aids. Like, right. all of the things that you get from a show is new. And you're responsible for this. And you're coming into a story that, you know, you're, 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 you're the steward of a story for a very short time. And everyone else there knows more about it than you. Yeah. And so how do you go in there and, you, and you, how do you function? How do you thrive? So I have some tricks of the trade that I've learned from those that that I that I think is helpful. I don't do episodic for other people, but I've had a lot of people do episodic for me. And you see, you know, the ways in which you can thrive within it. I'm director Maureen K. Jola Evans, and you're watching Let's Shoot with that. Transitions, a director's journey and motivational handbook, is Pete Chapman's book from Michael Weezy Productions. The reviews are in. Greg Berlanti says, There's a reason why everyone who works with Pete falls in love with his work. The lessons he imparts here are invaluable. Do yourself a favor and read it cover to cover. From Sarah Gamble, Pete's sharing gold nuggets that will spare you a ton of wasted time and help you channel your drive, talent, and ambition in the most productive way. And from Jesse Williams, this business has everything to do with preparation and expectations. Transitions grounds lessons in reality while empowering our artistry to run free. Not an easy balance to execute. Transitions, a director's journey and motivational handbook is available on Amazon and anywhere else you get your books. Don't forget about your mom and pop shops, people. So let's get into origin. Now, what was what brought you to the to the book and to the idea of turning it into a film? I, I, the book just intrigued me because I didn't really understand it fully. 
And I, I mm-hmm. so I spent more time with it than I usually would with most books. You know, I ended up reading it three times before I approached mm-hmm. Isabel Wilkerson about possibly adapting it because I just, I needed to understand the concept. And the first time reading it, I got it surfaced, but I didn't really, right. really get it. Like I got some of the, the choice phrases you could say, but I didn't truly understand that. And that, you know, hadn't happened to me often where I, I just... I needed I needed more. So there was something that kept drawing right. me to the book, and uh, and then in the middle of the second time reading it, I started to think, how would one make this? And and then read it again, just really searching for the things I needed to create the screenplay. Because mm-hmm. it's a nonfiction book, so there's not a beginning, middle, and end that's character based, and it's not plot based. So if you're taking a set of facts and anecdotes. And you're trying to create a propulsive narrative that's a feature film. Well, and I knew I didn't want to make it a doc. Uh, then mm-hmm. who do I follow and how does that work? At one point, I was thinking of doing it like Crash, like little, little this story and that story. But it just, it just wasn't enough because in the book, it's just quick anecdotes that, right. that illuminate moments in history. So, you know, when I came upon the idea of, of having the author drive us through the, right. the information, you know, then it became pretty exciting to try to, to try to do. And, you know, was a grand experiment. Did you end up spending time with her personally uh, to get a sense of, of this character that you would be following? It was during COVID uh, when I mm. wrote it. So it was a lot of zooms. Yeah. I had the occasion to, to be around her a couple of times and, you know, hours long conversation one day uh, and kind of hanging out to get a sense of the personal movements. But even with Selma, you know, I really rejected the idea of trying to, I think you get into mimicry when you're trying Uh to be like that person. I'm not trying to be like her. I want to kind of embody a person as opposed to be. So, so, so yeah, no, a lot of Zooms, hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of Zooms really to be taught. You know, she was teaching right. me about CAS. If I'm going to pass it on to someone else, I had to understand it. And, you know, the joy of reading a book and being able to ask the author every question you have about it over right. a two-year period, right? And and then also, you know, everything that's in the film that's her personal story is not in the book. Mm-hmm. So the losses that she experienced, the drive that she, you know, had to continue on, what she was going through in different times was all part of the interview process. Right, right. Yeah. So did you have any particular, I'm just kind of getting into the mind of, in your mind, and I'm imagine, I'm trying to wonder what the process was like making the film, like, did you have any particular inspirations that you were sharing with your department heads as you were getting this thing moving through prep so they could kind of begin to see what you were envisioning in style and tone and or even just whatever little pieces that you might get from something? Yeah, I'll say hands down, the experience of making Origin was the most uh, enjoyable, happiest time I've ever had making anything. Mm -hmm. I was happy every day, happier every day. And I mean, who says that? I I was (laughs) every day 
I was overjoyed and bubbling with a sense of the promise of the film, the possibility of the film, the people that I was around, you know, there was no studio. Mm -hmm. You know, we had the money, a certain finite amount of money, and we were charged with making a film that was my vision for that amount of money. Who gets that? Right. And, I, and, and I've been through it, so I know people don't get it. Even when right. I was using my own money to make my early, early films for $15,000, $250,000, didn't know what I was doing. So now I have the experience. I have a story that I'm passionate about. I have, you know, the budget that I can get it done for without the breathing down my neck and the having to justify everything. And I can—I really felt the most free, which made me feel the most joy. Right. And not to say that you can't make beautiful things. I, I like everything that I've made very much. I love it within the limits of the studio structure. But imagine those are gone. Right. And you, every day you wake up and you're the captain of your destiny and you don't have to justify anything. You know, there's moments in the film that would not have made it through a studio process. Like what? Know? What do you think? Why all of a sudden in a film that's just, first of all, the script wouldn't have passed muster. Mm. You've got historical, you've got contemporary, you've got surreal, surreality, right? So mm -hmm. you've got, sometimes you're in the deep, you're, you're, in, you're in India, rural India, contemporary. You're in rural India, the feudal times. You are in, you are in the segregated South. You're in Nazi Germany. You're on a slave ship. You're in the right. modern coffee shop with the lady who made the thing. She's at the Black right. Family reunion with her friend right now. And then all of a sudden, wait, is this a dream? Why are these leaves falling in the room? You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like, mm -hmm. it, it, it's not working. They're, they're not right. going to say yes to this. Yeah, right. for, for me anyway. They might say yes yeah, to somebody I, else. It's interesting because that, make, that makes me think, like, I'm sure there's a something comparable that's out there where, you know, they've the studios have had no problem making it you know that's super challenging i mean there's a lot of films i've seen i'm like what was that i don't even know if i understood what was happening there but, but I, who made I, it yeah the question. who is allowed to express who is is allowed the freedom within that studio space who who has the power to right. say what they will and won't do i don't mm -hmm. and so in order mm -hmm. to get that i had to give it to myself and, right. you know, with the help of, you know, Paul Garns and Regina Miller and Tulane Jones and the folks that are just around her, around us, create the conditions that we wanted. And so right. to your question, every day was joyous. And, you know, the way I worked was, um, you know, I was really clear that I wanted to shoot on 16. I had asked to shoot on 16, many productions before working for studios right. and for all kinds of reasons, not Cost prohibitive, time prohibitive, workflow prohibitive, let's not, right? Mm -hmm. So that was one of the first things I did. Um, and my cinematographer, Matt Lloyd, just happens to be very adept and very enamored with and very knowledgeable about those film, format, film formats. So 16 was something that he embraced. And, you know, I wanted to have one singular look for all of the time periods. So we're in seven different time periods. We, we span hundreds of years. Uh, over 400 years, and we shot in 37 days in three continents. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And all of that is held by 16 with the same color grade. Right. 
There's well, no I, special sepia tone for the Holocaust. There's no this is right. black one. There's no desat on this or whatever. Same uh, colored by graded by Tom Poole, the great. And literally, the idea is there's a sameness to this idea of caste, which undergirds right. the foundation for what we experience. So we shouldn't be shifting in color and grade and grain as we're moving around. Right. I want it to flow from one time period, one place, one generation to another, all feeling like the same story because it is. And right. 16 really uh, allowed us to do that. So those were the early references, specifically a film called Carol, which has nothing to do hmm. with Todd Haynes' film, has nothing to do with anything that we were talking about subject-wise, but it just looks like butter. Like you mm-hmm. actually just want to slather it on your face right, and just like right. change yourself in Carol the movie. And so that that was an early reference beyond that Schindler's and just the handling of weighty subject matter. When you break down that screenplay, it's a really mm-hmm. fascinating screenplay because it is not a standard three-act structure. It looks like it is. It plays like it is. But when you really look at it, it is doing some really interesting things with time and how the stories are coming in and out. You have two stories running at the same time. The story right. of the Holocaust and then the story of Schindler. And right. really some, some, and so it helped me in thinking about, okay, the story of Cast and the story of Isabel and gave right. me something to tether onto. And then just generally, you know, the way I work is, is uh, I work with an idea about an anchor image. So I don't like to storyboard and I don't, I don't do a whole bunch of references. Like there's one thing that I'm trying to get from each scene every mm-hmm. time we're like, so when, when I'm, when I'm shot listing, I'm, I'm trying to get to this, this one thing, this visually is the hands. This visually is, I need to be like this and feel the whole thing. This is mm-hmm. like whatever the anchor image that I'm going after and I'll build the shot list around that key thing. And you're talking about uh, like like this specific shot is shot. really it tells the it, it is what the story what the scene is really about. It's this shot. If I don't get anything else but this shot yeah. and the wide, I can make yeah. it happen. You know yeah. what I mean? If it all yeah. falls apart and they shut us down right now, I'm getting that wide and then I'm going in for that. See and, that's and that indie I'm, that's that indie thing that you that so. I'm, like it's it's a superpower though right like where you're like so. you know yeah uh, somebody they got to go home early or we lost a generator all right let's get this other two shots and we're good like it'll and cut we're, and, we're good. I, and, and i also am so fortunate because I, I became so close to my i've had the same editor for all of these years mm-hmm. so close to my editor spencer averick and in my early films i i, I was not good at coverage because i had no time so I just, mm. I just, and I could see what that did. I sat there with him every day. Like I, 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 my right. favorite part of the process is the editing. So, so, so very quickly I was able to edit in my head and no, he'll never use that. We need this. I got to, mm-hmm. I just got to get the stuff that's going to cut the scene. And so for me, I'm cutting in my head. So as I, as I'm watching a performance, I'll take that. We didn't get that line. Mm-hmm. Get it from over here. Great. Let me right. move here. And I'm just. I'm putting it together as I go. So that's why I don't really do traditional shot list. I really right. don't. Right. Because I, I'm i going for that. The, ba- the main tools, right? Why to get you warmed up, go in for my anchor image, and then I'm going to start building around that because there's no way to predict what the performance is going to be. Mm-hmm. So you, your shot list that you spend time on, 
I know the crane is going to come over the thing. We need to, you know, get permit this and I'm doing this or I need a special circular right, dog, right. whatever. But but most of the time that embeds itself in the anchor image idea and everything mm-hmm. else I'm, I'm, I'm building based on. I mean, there was a, a thing that Anjanu did. And we had had time, you know, to just go in and really drench it down, which was rare. I was like, what could she do better than what she, I'm never going to cut away from that performance. It's just right. going to be on the face. We're wasting time. I'll right. get it one more time for safety. And then we're out of here because it, she's right. just a study. She gave right. you everything you wanted. And, and she, there was no one else in the scene to cut to. What am I getting? Hands, a cup, the tree outside? Like, let's call it a day and keep it moving. Right. And so. I like to to craft it, you know, prep enough so that I can be more free on the day is, is the hope. So I'm, I'm going to ask you about your transitions, right? Because I felt you said there are seven different time periods that you're kind of, that are interwoven, right? And I love the single format kind of look for everything because it, it, like you said, it does say that this is all one thing. But I made it on my second watching, I made a couple notes on the transitions that I was really digging. Um, okay. So the photo in the museum that morphs, then it cuts to them reviewing the minutes in that conference room. And yeah. then it cuts to the conference room in 1934, where they discuss yeah. the Jim Crow laws as a jumping off point for what the Nazis did. And yeah, then like you that. cut, that was dope. And then you cut to the characters in the cotton field. It's like, it's all part of the same narrative. And even like, you know, it, it opens up with, with, with Trayvon Martin, but, and we all know how that played out, but you don't play it out until you don't play it out visually or in within the story until we're at the concentration camp and the murder happens there. And I was like, it's just, it's making these all of the same uh, I don't want to say design. That's not the word I'm looking for, but it's, it's all the same shit, right? Like, yeah. um, and when Isabel's on the phone to Marion on her deathbed, and then those two birds, there's one bird and then another bird meets it and they fly off screen left. And I, and, and it's funny cause I was like, well, is that, is that her joining her mother or is that, she says, I'll walk with you'll walk with me and I'll meet you one day or something. Or is that her wanting to join her in the future? Yeah, but like, it's whatever you want it to be. You like those two? I think, but that, I feel like I asked you about that because I feel like with all of the movement between scenes and time, were those kind of written in or were those discovered on the day? Yeah, well, thank you for that. The the birds were were shooting the sky and it happened. And I huh. remember thinking, oh, wow, that's beautiful. Yeah. And really forgetting about it. And it was Spencer Averick who found it. Mm. My editor found it. I was like, we should use this piece somewhere. Those were Indian birds. So we were in India. We got those yeah. birds. But that wasn't supposed to be the end of that, that scene. And that's just something that happened and keeping your eyes mm-hmm. open and prepared for the unexpected. The, the piece that you're talking about in the museum was so intricate. She mm-hmm. had to go to that picture. Then I'm inside of her looking at minutes from what she saw in the picture. And then a match cut to a, I think it's a page turn or something. Yeah, it's a page turn. Yeah. That's the same one. And so all that is 
is planned. And there were a couple of other ones like that. You know, the one where you're in Nazi Germany and you pull out to reveal that what you've been watching is a picture and it's on the screen of the, the, the lecture she's giving. There were a couple things like that, but then it got a little wonky and I had to allow myself to say, it's not always going to be that intricate because mm-hmm. I found myself getting into like spending way too much time on these clever transitions. Like mm-hmm. there's one where she's in the bathtub and she and she's reading a book and then cut you're inside the book, you right. know, and I, and I had to right. give myself permission. Like they don't all have to be pulling out of the thing mm-hmm. and the morphing and the thing. You know, some of it is just, oh, we found these birds. You know, you, mm-hmm. we need something to, after that moment of, of, of mourning, I needed to take a breath to get to the next piece, the next activity. And what could we contemplate on? Let's do something that people can fill in the gap based on their experience of what that is. So that's exactly right. what the birds were. And then also just hard cuts. I mean, there's just... You thought you were here and now you're here. There are no captions on the movie. There are no lower thirds or anything that tells you now you're in Germany, 1946. Now you're here. Now you're there. All that's off. You you never know what's what. I never tell you explicitly with words on the screen where you right. are. Yeah, you know where you are. Right. And even if it takes you a second to catch up to it, good. That blurred edge is exactly what I want because... You could be a Nazi Germany, or you could be Trayvon, or you could be mm-hmm. you could be in India, you know, stepping into a sore. The right. bottom line is we're all experiencing this thing that is uniform across all cultures and times. Right. Someone has to be better than someone else. And the way that looks and how it manifests and how it behaves has all kinds of names that are real. Racism, right. sexism, Islam, all those things. But at the base of it, it's this really insidious idea that mm. we, as human beings, must have hierarchy. Yeah. Very few cultures that don't. And, yeah. so, and so if you get to that root, is there, that's underneath all the isms. That's something to solve for. If we can start to solve for that, then maybe the other ones start to have room to dissipate, change, be reshaped. Yeah. That's the quote, what I finally got from the book on the third reading. <laughs> did you did you ever read Sapiens? Yes. Yeah, I'm reading that now. And and, and there are I know parts someone trying to make that into a movie. Can you wow. believe it? I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's gonna be okay. But like yeah. but 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 the whole thing of like I think they, I think they were talking about like chimpanzees never would be in bands larger than 150. They just mm. naturally couldn't maintain order mm. after when they got to 151 chimps for whatever reason. <sighs> and the only thing and as as humans, as Homo sapiens, what we've found out is that. You know, we can, if we create these imagined realities and we use stories and we use mythology or whatever, that is the way that we can take large groups and anchor them to a society that works, right? Because right. money, money's not real, you know, don't write in, religion's not real. Like, none of, you know what I mean? Like, none of, these, but none of right. these things are like real, right? And it's interesting that, you know, the larger groups are always going to try and differentiate themselves and, and gain that leverage and make someone else, you know, 
pay for what they want. And it, it's, it's a shame. It's, it's kind of disheartening. You know what I mean? Like when you, as you read these books, but. But an awareness a, of it, I think. Yeah. Gives, it takes it from disheartening to, to, you know, an awareness and an intelligence about what is going on around you so that the things that are not working don't feel random and against you, but you understand that you're inside of a system Right, mm-hmm. performing this way for anyone at these yeah. different levels, and that takes it out of a personal, isolated, you know, and, and it's into a oh, we are inside of this. Right. I don't know matrix that performs this way, and uh-huh. I can I can go along that with that system, or I can break it right by even knowing that it's happening, mm-hmm. and, and that's what fascinated me about about cast. Yeah. I can go even beyond the isms that are inherent in my identity, right? And I can look at more root causes of why those exist as opposed to just treating the surface. Mm-hmm. I can at least I can treat the surface with an awareness of what the real wound is, what the real disease is. And that just gives me more, you know, all those things you name, you know religion, race, all those things are used as organizing principles. You say they're not mm-hmm. real, they're organizing principles, right? Same. Mm-hmm. Um, that people hold on to to anchor themselves, money, all of those things. Right. But the idea that, and, and, and the idea of caste is the same. It's a way to organize our thoughts around, around a lot of what we encounter. So that's really what I wanted to share. And, you know, the joy of making the film was figuring out every day how to put that into a movie with a character. You know, and how to do it on a certain budget, you know, with a crew of people who are along for the ride. We're like, okay, this morning we're doing, I remember the day was split. It was a, it was a scene with, on the slave ship. We had it in the same warehouse built, the slave ship, and we had had a half shell of an airplane. That scene got cut. Poor Paul Garns, mm-hmm. my producer, was just like, <laughs> I got to think about how much that cut. Let's just keep it moving. Keep it moving. Remember the day I had to go to him and say, so Spencer and I did some cutting today. He's like, oh, yeah. It's like, I think we're not going to use the plane. Ugh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Great. But, but that was on the same day, a contemporary scene on a plane and the slave ship. When you're indie, you're going that fast. Yeah. And the crew, you know, having to swing from one to the other. Um, and that was happening on any given day in India. We'd be doing stuff that was feudal India. We'd be doing stuff that was contemporary India. And so just to say, being around people who were up for it, they didn't right. know what they were walking into that day, but they were up for what it was, and what we were trying to convey. And, you know, and, and, and we didn't have to call in. You know, I don't think most people realize that when you're shooting an episode of television or everyone might not know. The producer's getting calls every two hours. Mm-hmm. Right? The, the, when the first shot goes off, a report goes into the studio, right? Most directors know that. Some of them don't. But it's like, ma'am, you are an hour and 50 minutes behind your first shot call. What? It's your shot call? What's going on? We got to get us. Right. Just get the first shot off. Even if you are shooting. Shoot a close-up. The, the print. <laughs> But close right. up, if everything's not ready, the shoes aren't here, shoot the hand, shoot something, get your first shot off, go, get it going. Now, the person at the studio who's waiting, they've, they've moved on to another show, right? Right, 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 right. Your clock is ticking unless your first shot, like those kinds of calls constantly coming in, the lunch report, the mid-morning report, the all that mm-hmm. stuff that's coming to the producer, 
We didn't have to do it. We just got to focus on expressing ourselves. It's like, go figure. What the heck That's is beautiful. this? That's beautiful. It was so beautiful. It was, so it was. It was like 2000. It was like it was like the short film you made. Like the film festival. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. What What do you? This is kind of a two part question. Going into the film as a director, was there anything that you were like particularly focused on? you know, flexing a muscle you were looking, a creative muscle you were looking to improve on. And then coming, looking back at it, what are you most proud of as a director? Oh, that's, those are nice questions. Uh, muscle to improve, to flex, not really. Um, I think, you know, the TV work has helped me so much in really exercising muscles. Mm, that, yeah. And I think that's yeah. why TV is so important and so beautiful is that, you know, people like, you know, that are doing... Even four episodes a year, they're shooting more than the feature director. Yeah. Right? You're yeah. shooting, you're, you're out there, you're exercising it, you're making, you're honing it, and you're working with different kinds of actors, and you're just, you know, you're, you're in, a, in a vibe. And so the years of taking a break and doing TV, even when they see us, that pace, that, you know, it was, I, I felt very prepared on that side. The thing I wanted to learn was to shoot on film. I hadn't shot on film. That's a completely different way of, shooting you know i like to roll i don't i don't want i I don't want everyone rushing in after when i'm giving my adjustments like i do it on the roll right so still rolling so they've said the last (laughs) word of the script i'm we've hung there the actor's like oh is she gonna call it still rolling i'll say i'll go in give my adjustment we come right back out as soon as i say cut everybody's rushing in Exactly. But I'm on digital. This is nothing but X's and O's. I'm going to hold the sacred space of the set and get this next thing. I do it a lot. Can't do that on film. They're like, ma'am, you have 30 more seconds of break. Right. Like, but, <laughs> but did she just got started? Just getting, nope, roll out. I mean, I was the first right. week, Pete, I rolled out. They were like, she's a rollout queen. I'm taking it to the nth degree and I'm missing stuff. Right. So I, they came up, Matt came up with a system because we had two cameras where they'd start late. Right. And had signals that I, you know, signals to me because there's no monitor. Like I can't, I, I can't look through the monitor. That's great. Though. So you're, you're like, you're probably right there with the camera, right? Like you're as I'm, close to I'm as you right can be. There with the, I'm watching it with my eye. So yeah. I'm not walking, looking at monitors because what I'm looking at on a monitor is not what's in the camera. So. Right. Because the, a film camera can't be connected to a monitor. So I'm looking at a proxy digital on top of the thing. I was like, ah, I don't want this. Right. This is not what I'm going to see in dailies. I don't need that. I just had to adjust my practice to I'm watching it with my eye. But still, that doesn't tell me exactly what the frame is, how it's feeling, what comes in. So mm-hmm. I'm blind until dailies. This is the thing I took comfort in. Everybody shot that way up until two days ago when digital, you know right. what I mean? Like. You're looking at the films that you love the most. Uh, yeah, they were made this way. Get a yeah. grip. Do it. And you definitely so, were like, you got it? they like, yeah, I got it. All right, cool. Moving on. Like, I got you it. better have it, brother, because if you yeah. don't, we ain't got it. You know? And with this one, you have that. I, I know we got it because I saw it. This is, yeah. I, I know we got it because he told me we did, and I trust him and her. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that is a different level of working than I'm <laughs> at, I had ever done. And so... But it, but it created a, a crispy vibe. It created kind of like a renegade, rebellious feel that sounds funny to probably people who've shot on a lot of film. But for me, instead of flexing a muscle, I was trying to build a muscle. 
And so yeah. I was really trying to build that. And 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 then the other one was when I felt proudest of. Yeah, looking back, coming out of the the production and post, and looking back at this finished thing, which is which so often is a little different from what we imagined. I, I assume, right? Yeah. Like, what do you look back at and say, you know? Yeah, I yeah. did that. <laughs> well, I, as a writer, director, and producer, it's all different things. And the writing of it, I remember feeling, never feeling, there were times where I felt a little daunted with what I'd taken on. And this structure of everything moving around, and it's in the script where I'm jumping around. You know, there were people early on who read it who were just like, I'm not sure this is going to work. So as a writer, mm. I'm thrilled that it worked. What I saw in my head as I'm writing is in the film and works although untraditional, although to the question of who's the antagonist, who's the villain, right. there is one. What's the world the is the villain. <laughs> Everyone, we are the villain, yeah, right? Yeah. You know, what is the uh, what is the act two break? What's your midpoint? What's like all those usual screenwriting things that I just said, I'm just going to do it a different way. Mm-hmm. The writer is proud that those worked and that I tried it. And, and in the... And the producerally, you know, three continents in 37 days without a studio on film. That says it all there. And directorially, I would say the performances. I would say, you know, working with those actors, particularly Anjanou Ellis-Taylor, who is at a level that's almost otherworldly, to really, Mm -hmm. as as a director who really likes to be close with the direct, with the actor, this is your performance and I'm your best friend. Mm-hmm. I am going to, if you need me, I am here. I see something, I'm going to tell you. You know, sometimes I know when to let you try it. You know, mm-hmm. but I, I, I am there with you. I'm not going to let you fall. This is what I'm here for, right? This is yours and I am your Flavor Flav. You're Chuck D. I'm Flavor Flav. This is what I'm here for. Right. And I'm hyping you up, but I'm also going to tell you when it's a little... But with Anjano, it's different. You know, she is a, to learn how to, you know, she is a soloist, but a collaborator. She Mm -hmm. so wants to give me or her directors what the director wants. But when she thinks, you know, when she knows what it is, let me take the ball and go do it. And, you know, and so that just giving her room. You know, and she's an actor that is very different than any that I worked with before. And I'd worked with her before. I was like, did were you this week when they see us? She was like, I was trying to be. You were real close, but I was trying. <laughs> I was trying to be. But you know, she was the lead in this, and I just wanted her to feel fully empowered in the way that she wanted to work, not the way that I right. wanted to work. Right. And so right. I'm proud of being able to give her what she needed, give everyone what I what I what I believed they needed or what they asked for. And you know, mm-hmm. that's a juggling act when you've got a large cast. Oh yeah. Is there anything ab- about the film that you want to share or talk about that, you know, maybe you haven't put out yet or had a chance to expound upon? Um, you know, so many, so many things about, 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 you know, it's interesting because I occupying these three different roles as writer, producer, director, you know, and, and when I say producer, there wasn't a large producing team. It was me and Paul Garns every day making yeah. these decisions about how we were moving around. I would just say there was such a, it was the first time that there was a real cohesiveness between all of those mm. in film. 
I'd always had it in on Queen Sugar, you know, the rewrites, the production decisions. Uh, I wasn't actively directing. So no, that wasn't an actually like all three disciplines that came together was something that was just an extraordinary experience. And there, there's so many stories about when the writer would take the lead or, you know, mm-hmm. the producer's enemies trying to figure it out for the money. And the writer's like, I just rewrite it. Just, just give me, give me two minutes. I'll just, right. or we can cut that. We don't need it. Wait, we can cut it, you know, or, you know, the director in me saying, do we really, let's just, you know, I just had like all these three different people and roles in my head and somehow they came together in a way that I'd never experienced and it was addictive. You know, I, I really don't know what I'm doing next for the first time. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I'm doing next because how do you concoct an experience that is of equal, I don't know, joy, equal complexity, equal like, you know, I got a script right. the other day and I was like, Oh, this is not, you're not announcing your retirement, though. I'm not announcing my retirement. (laughs) I'm announcing a slower, I think what will be a slower process. Like my output has been very frequent. Yeah. And, you know, whether it's television, commercials, music video, you know, movies, limited series, docs, I'm constantly making something. I've never not been in production. My office, folks that work at Array say, you know, how many times do they say she can't do it? She's in production. It's constantly because I'm always in production for the last decade and a half. So this is the first time where I, when the film comes out and it's finished with this run, I'm not prepping something else or I'm not on posting something and I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to enjoy it. I have a feeling you're going to find something to do with that time. (laughs) I do too. (laughs) And I'm looking forward to it. Well, this is the martini question here. And, you know, I'll, I'll throw, I have a, I have a, I have a little grab bag of them, but I, I feel like I'd like to know your answer to this one. Someone were to make a project about your life or you, would it be, okay, first, who is starring as Ava DuVernay? Who's directing it? Is it a, it could be a film, it could be a series, you know, your choice, it could be a limited series. And what genre? First of all, I wanted to hear the end of your question before I said I absolutely cannot answer this. Because I just was for kids. wanted to see where it goes. No clue. Will never happen, A. But it's a fun exercise. No clue. Who would direct it? I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. The people that come to mind, there are like women who made Queen Sugar. Mm. There's some people there uh, who... I've gotten to know, like maybe right in this moment, I would say Victoria Mahoney. Mm-hmm. She's a dear, dear sister, friend to me and knows me really, really well. A close personal friend and a, and a wonderful director. So maybe mm-hmm. her. And I know she loves me. She's not going to put nothing crazy in there. And But she'll also get to the nitty gritty. And then uh, who would play me? No clue. I don't even know. I can't say that because then I'm giving preference to actors and I, I, I deal with too many of them. Well, it would so, be a nationwide I, casting call. A, a for... new person that you've never met. Exactly, yes. Pete. Thank you, yeah. Pete. An ingenue who you've, not ingenue Ellis, an ingenue that you've never met who is going to be fantastic. And it would be definitely be a drama because I am 
the most unfunny person you've ever met. So it would be a deep drama, not a dark drama, like a, a nice, nice adult drama. Okay. Okay. Yes. Yes. And hopefully that last scene will be me in my late 90s spry and still calling action and cut and enjoying myself and happy and plump and satisfied. And that's the last scene. Like, can that be the last scene in a movie? Happiness? Can it just be like yeah. a life, a life well lived? I would like that. And then in tribute to your indie filmmaking days, it'll be a jib going up to about 10 feet, you know. <laughs> that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, well, this has been an absolute pleasure. I appreciate you taking the time during this holiday break to sit down with me. You know, you've been someone I've admired from the early times. I tell the story to, I remember one time, I went to email you back on Facebook and it would be when it was when like whatever your prior correspondence was would would pop up like when uh, you send a message and yeah. you had congratulated me on winning Tribeca All Access in 08. And I was like, man, I, I didn't even remember that. But like you were all you always had your hand on the pulse of what was going on. And so I, I'm wishing the best for Origin for this film for you and whatever your next project may be. You know, don't start working on it till 2025. Okay, I like that. Take a break. Take a break. I'm going to try, brother. Thank you for, for just being a light to us. And uh, I think this is such a beautiful forum that you've created. And I'm glad to have a little uh, conversation with you. So thanks for taking time for me. Thank you. What's up, people? This is Pete Chapman. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter via at Pete Chapman. Follow the pod on IG via at Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman and hit up our mailbag with questions, suggestions, or hey, donations if you're feeling like it via Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman at gmail.com. And just in case you need to know how to spell it, that's Pete with the last name C-H-A-T-M-O-N. Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman is produced and edited by the multi-talented cut creator Tristan Nash. Assistant produced by the young mogul Jada George and features the wonderfully gifted Kelly McCreary as our announcer. It's written by yours truly, but I mostly come up with these questions on the fly, which you've probably noticed. Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman is sponsored by Sweat Equity, so go ahead and get your podcast swag via PeteChapman.com and leave a review on iTunes if so inclined. That shit matters. All right, y'all. That was our chat with Ava DuVernay on Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman, discussing her new film, Origin, for which she wrote the script, directed, and also served as a producer. Lovely film. I've seen it two times. I've ur I'm urging everybody to go check it out as soon as you can. And tell a friend. That's what we do. That's an important film, and I'm really excited to have had an opportunity to chat about what went into making it and more specifically about Ava's journey to today. So as always, y'all, stay safe, spread love, and keep creating. And stay tuned for more information on when we'll drop season five of the podcast. Let's shoot with Pete Chapman.